Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Reading a selection of verses from chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please have a seat. There are so many things that I love about our congregation and our community here. And one of it is, one of the things that uh, I delight in is the fact that we are a high participation community. We coined that phrase fairly early on. So if you haven't uh, realized it yet, um, I'd be surprised. But we are a high participation community. And one of the things that um, is delightful about these next few weeks is that we're going to have a number of people from our community preaching week by week. And so... Juliet is uh, going to um, talk to us now about the practice of service, but we are so grateful for Juliet and Philip and Charlie, of course, and also for their fan club in the back corner. Um, Welcome, and uh, let's pray for Juliet as she brings God's word to us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Juliet. I thank you for the way that you live in her life in so many different demonstrable ways. Thank you for the way that she has learnt to serve you and has learnt to say yes. Lord, I pray for her now as she speaks. Will you refresh her, restore her? Will she go from this place having met with you in a remarkable way, knowing that you are tangibly close to her? Help us to listen well and to hear the words that you have given her to say to us. May we also engage with you closely as she speaks. Amen. Thank you, Lou. Okay. Hi. So I have to confess something. Um, My inspiration for the sermon came as an epiphany midway through a particularly nasty fight my husband and I were having about something super dumb. I can't exactly remember why we were fighting, but when your kid is born two days after your first wedding anniversary, you tend to get into a lot of really stupid fights. Anyway, what I do recall is that at some point, my very wonderful husband, in an effort to appease me, offered to do something extra special. I can't remember what that was exactly, but it definitely did not appease me. (laughs) Because what I really needed 
And what I needed him and wanted him to do were some chores that he had said he would do but hadn't yet. Gift giving is actually my love language, so I would typically never turn down a treat or a special gift. For anyone unfamiliar with the term love languages, it's the theory that each of us has a certain way that we give and receive love, um, whether it's quality time or gifts, physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, etc. Part of loving someone might include the hard work of learning to communicate love in a way that is unfamiliar to you, but also to receive love in a way that may not initially resonate as loving. In this case, the way I primarily give and receive love is by giving a gift that shows the other person that I was thinking of them. Anyway, the insanity of life with a small child turns everything upside down, including turning the idea of a clean bathroom into a very thoughtful and romantic gift. It's a gift that doesn't <laughs> just benefit me, though. It benefits everyone in the household and especially anyone visiting our apartment. So Phil's offer to spend time on something other than what I had asked for and other than what he had agreed to felt like the opposite of loving. As I was expressing my feelings about this to Phil in a super kind and nice way, <laughs> obviously, um, the words of Isaiah 58 came to mind and shut me up. In that moment, I both felt God's solidarity, like God also knows what it's like to have a beloved who doesn't do what you asked, but also conviction, because I do a lot of things that God didn't ask for while neglecting the things that he did, like fighting with my husband, but taking great care to light our Advent candles or keep Lent. It made me wonder, what is God's love language? Obviously, God is love and can love us in all different types of ways, but what delights God? What is God's love language? So I decided to meditate for a while on Isaiah 58, which also brought to mind the passage of Amos that we just read. I started to read the frustration in God's voice in a new way, which was communicated very, very well. In Isaiah 58, 1 through 3, can you hear that frustration? Listen. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers." Can you also hear the frustration in Amos 5, 21 through 24? I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." In these passages, we're presented with two scenarios in which God calls out his people for going through the motions, for just phoning it in, and not loving God as they ought, for not learning his love language. Maybe in some ways we are like those ancient Israelites who fasted to show their devotion and as a way to convince God to do what they wanted. Maybe we really hope that in return for our sacrifice, God will do what we want. 
But when these people who God loved fasted, they would deny themselves nourishment, but they would still oppress their workers and they would fight with each other. Far from drawing, causing God to draw near to them, that kind of fasting really repelled God. The fasting that God desired involved creating a community that was just and merciful. When we fast for Lent, are we actually seeking God during this time, or are we just giving up something for the sake of fasting? Are we, say, refraining from chocolate or alcohol, but like still being a low-key jerk to our coworkers or our family? Or maybe we're like the ancient Israelites who delighted in celebrating God through feasts and festivals and all the trappings of religious worship. In the Amos passage, when God refers to your feasts, your solemn assemblies, your burnt offerings, what he, he really means that they're theirs, not his. It's not what he asked for or he wanted. Those things are a burden to him. He can't even listen to the songs or smell the sacrifices because they're doing all of that instead of busying themselves with the justice and righteousness that God required. When we come to worship, are we singing our songs and saying our prayers for God or for us? When we leave worship, are we going out to help create a more just and righteous world? <sighs> so, <laughs> what is important to God? What is God's love language? In these passages, the prophets are pretty clear. Justice, righteousness, humility, putting others first, caring for those in need. So basically, serving, acts of service. We also see this in the gospel reading. Jesus takes the position of a servant and charges us to do the same. He tells us in Matthew and Mark, as we prayed earlier, that he hasn't come to, serve, to be served, but to serve. Serving is God's heart, and it's what delights him. But busying ourselves with justice and righteousness is not just a gift that God alone is going to enjoy. It's like cleaning the bathroom or speaking kindly to someone, but on steroids, a more just and righteous world filled with humble people seeking to serve others instead of themselves benefits all of us and not just God. A cynical person reading these passages and hearing this sermon might think, okay, I'll just volunteer more or be nicer to people. But as anyone who has ever had a relationship with any other human being, whether it's their parent or child or spouse or friend or colleague, you know that um, it's not enough to just do what somebody asks you to do and just phone it in. After a while, it's going to lead to a bigger problem down the road when something will come up that will make you stop doing that and then cause more problems later on. So how can we learn God's love language? Well, we need changed hearts. We need hearts that are turned toward what God loves. We need God's heart. In the gospel reading, we're given an example of what God's heart looks like. Facing his own death, John says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. One commentary I read through, it's the commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, for anyone who is fact-checking this. Um, they said, on the very edge of his last sufferings, when it might have been supposed that he would be absorbed in his own awful prospects, he was so far from forgetting his own who were to be left struggling in the world after he had departed out of it to the Father, that in his care for them, he seemed scarce to think of himself save in connection with them. So how does Jesus speak his love language to his disciples? How does he show them his love? Well, Jesus performs a humiliating and radical act of service by washing his disciples' feet. 
Here's Jesus, who at this point had performed all kinds of miracles. He had at least gotten Peter to admit that he was the Messiah. And in the middle of their meal, he gets up, he takes off his clothes, he puts on a towel, and starts washing their feet and drying them with that same towel. This is not only an extremely humbling act, it's at the time only the lowliest of servants who were not Jewish would have performed this. It would also have been unheard of, though, for someone like Jesus in relation to his disciples to wash their feet. In fact, Peter famously protests that Jesus will never wash his feet, and in the exchange he has with Jesus indicates that he doesn't get this act of love on his part. Peter doesn't get this love language. He doesn't yet have God's heart. At this point in the sermon, you might be feeling like throwing up your hands. We are a mess. We don't get it. And honestly, we're kind of the worst because sometimes maybe we don't even really want to get it. Maybe it's time to throw in the towel and find a new God that isn't as high maintenance. But that would be a mistake. Centuries before Jesus, through the prophet Ezekiel, God promises that in the time of the Messiah, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, God loves us so much that he will do the hard work of helping us to learn his love language. The radical act of foot washing that Jesus performs at the Last Supper is just a foretaste of the most radical act of service that he is going to perform later on. In those same places in Matthew and Mark, where Jesus tells us that the Son of Man came to serve, he adds, and to give his life as a ransom for many. After living a life of justice and righteousness, after loving the Father perfectly in our place, he gives his life for us on the cross in our place. Through the cross, our failure to love God as we ought and to love our neighbors as ourselves is paid for. Through Christ's resurrection, we are also raised with him and made new creations and given new hearts. Through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are given the power to love God as we ought and to speak his love language back to him. Years after having his feet washed by Jesus and witnessing his death and resurrection, John the Apostle and author of the gospel reading this week wrote a letter to some early Christians telling them that we love because God loved us first. He would know something about that. Today we are invited to come to Christ's table, no matter whether we've loved God or our neighbors perfectly, and to receive his love. As we confess our sins and come to the table, let's allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and show us what we've done and what we've left undone and the ways in which we resist serving God and others. When we receive Christ's body and blood, let's allow the Spirit to give us God's heart and to teach us to speak his love language.